this is a big weekend for runners. I don't know if you know that because a lot of the runners are they're doing this race. Um, they have at the, the there's these series of races that happen this weekend that end at the Capitol, and they've got everything from a diaper dash all the way up to marathon. Which Dan, Pastor Dan, is running that. He might actually be out there. He said, "I hope to finish sometime today." That was his goal time. <laughs> I love that guy. Well, anyway, um, it is my hope that I'll be joining some of these ECCers out there next year in these in these races. And so um, on Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays, and Saturday mornings, you can find me out on the road trying to get this 49-year-old body back into shape, biffer shape, right, Justin? Biffer shape. Got to get in a biffer shape. Anyway, so I'm doing my best. And one of the things that happens then when you're out there on the roads, if you start to get a consistent time uh, when you're out there running, is you start to see some of the same people. And so there's this really interesting kind of community that happens at 10-second increments um, a couple times a week as you pass the same walkers, you pass the same runners, you pass the people that are out there with their dogs. And I'm bringing this up because there's this one person, we're going to call her Sally, who, who was out there walking her dog. She's got this enormous big dog. And when you pass her and you say good morning, it's not just good morning, it's good morning! You know, just, she's like, joy just comes out of her like music through a speaker. You know, it just, it just oozes out of her. And I had a theory about where that joy came from, but I didn't have a a, a chance to test that theory until just about a week ago when I finished my run, I came to my driveway, and then right across the street, this person, Sally, is talking to my neighbor. So I go up to Sally, and I say, all right, you got to tell me. You got to tell me, where does this joy come from that just oozes out of you? And she goes, it's Jesus, she says. (laughs) It's Jesus. She goes, I know it's not politically correct, she says, but it's Jesus. Oh, friends, there was a time. There was a time when people looked at the church and they said similar things. There was something about this group of people in the first century. They saw them and they saw something different in them than all these other communities and groups around them. They saw this people who loved and cared for one another like they were a loving family. They, they saw this group of people who welcomed strangers in like they weren't strangers. They saw this group of people who put boundaries around destructive and dangerous behaviors, and yet they weren't all judging each other all the time. They saw this group of people where ugly politics couldn't gain a foothold. They saw this people who were really listening and learning from one another, even if they came from radically different backgrounds. They saw people who were not perfect. The Bible does not pull any punches about how broken they were and how messy things were. But together, they were building something very, very special. Well, this fall, we made a decision to turn our attention to the book of Acts and to rediscover what it was about these people that caused others around them to see that there was something different. This group of people that went on then to grow and to change the world. Well, this morning, what we're going to look at in the book of Acts is what Acts has to teach us about leadership, about leadership. So let's dive right in. There's a place to, um, to take out on your notes here, to take out and to write this down. I want to encourage you to do that. Godly leaders are a community's most valuable earthly asset. And I don't know if that statement is grammatically correct, but I do believe it with all my heart. Godly leaders are a community's most valuable earthly asset. And there are people who are far wiser than me who would argue that everything rises and falls on leadership. Everything. 
rises and falls on leadership. And before you tune out, if you're thinking, well, I'm not a leader, so I get the Sunday off, you know, this doesn't apply to me. There are those who are wiser than me who say leadership is influence. Leadership is influence. And everybody has influence. Everyone has influence. If you're a friend or a teammate, if you're a classmate or brother or sister, you have influence. If you're a parent or coworker or neighbor or teacher or coach or manager or social media poster, you have influence. All of us have influence to varying degrees. So I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm asking you to turn to the people around you and say, hey, you're a leader. Just do that. Do it. Tell them you're a leader. You're a leader. You're a leader. That might feel weird, but you are. You're a leader. Each and every person in this room, you're a leader. You have influence. You have influence, and you're a leader. And the way, the way that you lead matters. The way that you lead matters. Nothing, nothing will affect a business. Nothing will affect a team. Nothing will affect a school or a city or a nation or a family or a church. Nothing will affect these things like the behaviors of the leaders. In every age, in every culture, in every quarter of this planet, the church of Jesus Christ has an opportunity to shine and to stand out with how we handle the influence that God's given us. And how we do this, specifically as Christians, how we do this together. Because we're called to do leadership together. Christianity is not one of us leads and the rest follow that person. It's how do we do this together. And I tell you, I said something about this to some of you in the lobby last week. You know, when you're asking, how are you? And I'm like, looking at our country? How am I? I'm so glad I wasn't given this message last week in the, in the midst of all that. I was, I was frustrated, absolutely frustrated, that after 200 years, our nation's leaders haven't been able to figure out how to conduct themselves. You know, think about this. Think, think about this. I, can you imagine, you take something as difficult and complicated and sensitive and important as what we're going through right now with this confirmation hearing? We can, we can disagree on, on the outcome, but wouldn't it have been remarkable if we could have said, you know what, our leaders conducted themselves well through this. They took something sensitive. They took something complicated. They took something messy. They took something that really matters. And they were able to try to navigate that with wisdom and with tact and with a way that set an example for the rest of us. That's what I was longing for. I was just longing for that. And I was just mad, just mad. But then I was able to remind myself or the Holy Spirit was able to remind me, don't expect the world not to act worldly, right? You know, one of the things that we learned from Jesus is he used to do contrasts all the time. And one of the things he would contrast frequently, he'd said, there's the kingdoms of this world, he would say. And he would contrast that with the kingdom of God. And he, specifically with leaders, he would say, the leaders of this age, the leaders of this world, they act this way. But guys, I've got something better for you. I've got a different way, a different way that I'm calling you to as people who are citizens of a different kingdom. And I long for that. When we get to the end of this week's journey into the word here today, 
I'm going to ask you to imagine something with me. So we're going to do something a little bit different. I'm gonna, we're going to skip to the bottom of our outline today. I want to encourage you to fill this in, and then this is where we're going to come to. I know what she says. We're going to go all the way to the bottom, and I want to encourage you to fill this in. I want you to imagine this is where we want to land today. I want to imagine a community with godly leaders in every role, in every role. Can you imagine that? Maybe I should have put God honoring, you know, God honoring leaders in, in every role. Remember, leadership is influence, and where, what you do is you start with yourself and move outward. And can you imagine if, if we had people, in, you know, all of us, if we, were, if we were starting with ourselves and doing self-leadership well, watching our behaviors, watching our mouths, stewarding our time and our, our resources well, and then moving out from there in our, in our friendships, on our teams, that we were trying to have God-honoring influence there. And then in the other roles that God has placed us in, that we were behaving in God-honoring ways and having God-honoring influence as managers, teachers, supervisors, officers, principals, committee members, board members, CEOs. Can you imagine the way that we'd shine if we were living as Jesus taught us to live? And if that's not a way that you're familiar with, that's what we're going to look at today. Let's, let's keep diving in. So now back up to the chronological place on our, our, uh, our, our outline. I want to encourage you to write this down. Godly leaders, they follow in the footsteps of Jesus. They follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you can find an example that Jesus set himself, and examples that he set himself. Well, why we're looking at the book of Acts is because now in this book, we get to see as the early church tried to figure out, now what does that look like in us? What does Jesus actually look like in us? And what does that look like in us together? So we're going to look at several selections from the book of Acts. Let's start with chapter 20. And we're going to look at verses 18 through 35. And here are some words from an influential disciple of Jesus named Paul. And what he has to say about kind of the essence of leadership and, and starting with yourself and working outward. He says this, starting with verse 18. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all what? All humility. Humility. And with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. The Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Then he says this, pay careful attention to whom? To yourself. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. All right, I want to hit pause just a second here because what we're looking at is an example of the sacrificial nature of authentic Christian leadership. And I don't want to miss the point that Paul is making here about the importance of Christian leaders paying careful attention to ourselves, to ourselves, and those we care for, and those we serve. This matters. If, if, you're, if you're on our leadership teams, you've probably heard me say this at least once. Every gift that God gives to the church matters. One of the things that's significant about the gift of leadership, it affects all the other gifts. It will either help to magnify all the other gifts, or it will minimize all of the other gifts. And there's nothing like the gift of leadership 
if it's exercised poorly, that can cause everything to come crashing down. This matters. So, Paul says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Then Paul goes on to say this, starting in verse 29. He says, now I know after my departure, fierce wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock. From among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw the disciples after who? After them. See what he's saying here? There's going to come people, instead of saying, follow me as I follow Christ, they're just saying, follow me. Follow my ideas. Follow follow me because I've got this thing figured out. Well, here's my takeaway from all this. Leadership begins in this next blank that we have right here in your notes. It begins here. There's a place to write this down. Distinctly Christian leadership begins with example following. Example following. In my first draft of this, I put example setting because that's normally what we say. But that's not correct for distinctly Christian leaders. We don't set the example, do we? We follow the example. Christian leaders, we're followers. We're followers of Jesus. We follow the example and teaching of Jesus. As Paul points out in the challenge that we had just read earlier, one of the marks of authentic Christian leadership is our willingness to serve and to sacrifice, as Christ did. And closely related to this, another way to spot a distinctly Christian leader is where do they put the spotlight? Is the spotlight on them? Or do they follow in the footsteps of leaders like John the Baptist, who said in John 3, verse 30, he says, I must decrease, he must increase. Right? I think he reversed the order. He put the order like this. He must increase. I must decrease. The best leaders, we lead by example. That's the foundation of all great leadership. And this is just one of the things. There are countless examples in Acts, countless examples in the book of Acts that we could look at. We're going to look at three more, and we're going to have to take them on really, really quick here today. Let's look at number two. Here's another thing that we can find to see about leadership um, done well. And we see it in the book of Acts, and that is effective delegation. Effective delegation. There is an exceptional example of effective delegation in Acts chapter 6. Now, we've looked at Acts chapter 6 before when we were looking at different topics. It's fascinating to look at this through the lens of leadership. If you have your Bibles with you, please open with me to Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to have you go home with one free. We keep a stack there at the table. Please take one home with you when you go. All right. Well, as you're turning there, I want to give you some important background on this. As Acts chapter 4 closes, we're in Acts 6, as Acts chapter 4 closes, the church is, quote, one in heart and mind. That's chapter 4. They're in one in in heart and mind. So much so that chapter 4 also says they have no needs among the people. They're taking care of one another so well that there's no needs among the people. Now we get to chapter 6. And those two things have changed. Here we go, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint, remember that word, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve 
tables. All right, let's start to unpack this a little bit. More and more people were becoming followers of Jesus, and that's a good thing. But as the church grew, it faced new challenges. And until I did my prep this week, I'd forgotten that in chapter 4, the daily distribution was the responsibility of the apostles. That was their job. And they were doing a great job of it. You can look it up. Acts 4.35, that was their job. But now as the church was growing, things are getting more complex. They weren't able to do that job well. At least not if they were going to sacrifice other things that they had to do. Now, one of the other things I learned this week or reminded of this week was that it was common for Jews who lived in other countries to spend their last days in Israel. And the reason they would do that near the end of their life, they would move to Israel, was because they believed it was good and holy to be buried there. So there were a number of these people that were, they would move towards Israel as they got older in their years so that they could die and be buried there in Israel. And I looked at six or seven sources this week, and, and as those sources I looked at, the general consensus was that these Hellenists that we're reading about here were primarily Greek-speaking Jews who were coming back to Jerusalem which meant, connect these dots, if you're a Hellenist widow, that means you're coming into a situation, you no longer have your husband, you don't have anyone to care for you in that time in that place. You don't have the family support network. So there's a real need here. How are we going to care for these people? This is a real need. Another thing I learned this week is that the word translated here as complaint, it said people are complaining about this, is loaded. It's loaded word. So what we have when people talk about original manuscripts, the closest things we have is we have one that's in Hebrew of the Old Testament, and we have one that's in Greek of the Old Testament. The one of the Greek one, the Greek translation is called the Septuagint. That word is loaded because in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament translation, right, the word that we translate here as complaint is the same word that's used as the people were grumbling and complaining against Moses, which was more rebellion against Moses and God than anything else. That's the language that's echoed here. So this is a potentially volatile situation. This thing before the church now, this has the, this has the potential to just blow everything up. Because you can see that you've got this growing number of people, you've got this real need, you've got tension that is building, and you've got a way of doing things that no longer works. Well, following the teaching, an example of Christ, the church leaders were able to respond. They were able to respond immediately and sensitively. They were able to do both of those things. This quote from the NIV application commentary says it really well. The apostles did not focus attention on the complaining attitude towards the leadership. They didn't take it personal. Nor did they talk about the priority of the spiritual and the relative unimportance of earthly food, as some may have done. This was a genuine problem, and the best way to quell doubts about prejudice was to solve the problem. Radical notion. Let's solve the problem. Thereby, they not only averted a serious crisis of disunity, they also led the church to take a significant leap forward in terms of organizational structure. This is our heritage as the church. Problem solvers. Not problem avoiding. Not problem spinning. 
Not problem weaponizing, problem solving. Let's go back to our text. Here's how they solved it in this case. Acts 6, 3 through 5. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. Now, there's going to be a happy ending here. And it's not lost on me that this came after the church leaders said, first things first, we cannot neglect prayer. We cannot neglect the ministry of the word. If we fail on those two things, then it is going to be about us. It is going to be our own strength. We are going to be limited to our knowledge rather than tapping into the wisdom and strength and power and guidance of God. Well, after prioritizing prayer in the word, they then went on to define the kind of leaders that were needed. And that is another best practice. How many of you know that delegating responsibility to the wrong people is far worse than not delegating at all? How many of you know that? All right, absolutely, absolutely. And if I can just hit pause here and go off of my notes, thank you, all of you who are leading in this church. You're doing such a great, everything, everything, communion, worship bands, tech team, kids, teens, everything. We've got so many people who are leading so well. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, where are we here? Here we are. The word, this is interesting. The word translated as pick out from among you here in this text, the word that's translated as pick out among you, it really means to look out for or to visit. This nominating committee, if you will, was instructed to select, to visit, to look out for, to find seven men of good repute who were full of the spirit and wisdom. And it was interesting that a number of my sources drew parallels here. They said the process that's being used here is similar to the process that was being used for Joshua back in the day in Numbers 27. They didn't just go light because, oh, this is not as significant. No, they're like, we want to find great leaders for this job. Well, if we had time to keep reading, we'd see that that nominating committee did an outstanding job in their selection because the first two names on this list, Stephen and Philip, in the chapters that follow, we see how these were amazing leaders and we see how God worked through them. But then there's the other five guys that are named. Let's just call them the five guys. They have nothing to do with the founding of that restaurant down the street. The five guys. Now, their names matter. Let's go to Acts chapter 6, uh, 5 through 6. It says this, they chose Stephen, man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and then these five other guys whose Greek names are really hard to pronounce. But here's why they matter, even though they're hard to pronounce. The more I study the Bible, the more I realize these name lists do matter. And in this case, these names matter because they're all Greek names. All of them. Now, did my homework, were Greek names ever used for the Jews living that day? Yes. But it was not super common. And you would, the odds against all seven of these men that were selected for this job being Greek, it just, it was astronomical. This was intentional. They intentionally chose these men. All the evidence appears to point towards the nominating committee purposefully check, pers- purposefully selecting Hellenists to look after the Hellenist widows. Here's why this matters, and this is significant. This is so different 
than the way that leaders outside the church did things. In that time, in that place, those who had power would repress the minority voices, especially if those minority voices were complaining against them. What the apostles did was as shocking to the world as it was brilliant. They delegated this important responsibility to those who it affected most. And this is key. If you just heard what I said there and don't get the rest of this, you're going to have a hard time with delegation. And, and, not only did they look at people who were, whose voices were in the minority, they chose people. They didn't just choose anyone with a Greek name. That would have made things worse. These men were carefully, carefully vetted. They were full of faith. They were full of the Holy Spirit. They were men with great reputations who demonstrated great wisdom. And when they picked the right people for the right roles, look at what happens. Acts 6, verse 7, the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of who? The priests became obedient to the faith. It is not an exaggeration to say that we could spend the next hour talking about how we can see the best practices for delegation right here in Acts chapter 6. It, it, to the point where even priests wanted in. Why is that significant? They, one of my, well, several of my sources were talking about how in, in that time and in that place, there were different levels of priests. There were thousands of these priests serving at the temple. And there was this whole underclass of priests who were very, very poor. Is it possible that one of the reasons that so many of these priests converted to the Christian faith is they're like, look at how these guys take care of the poor. Look at how they serve these people and how they solve these problems. All right, time is short. Let's go to another leadership principle we find in Acts. Here it is. You'll hear, if you're around this church, you're going to hear this one often. External accountability. External accountability. Luke is the author of Acts. And Luke actually sets this one up in the book of Luke. In Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, you find the only place that I can think of where it says that Jesus was amazed at someone's faith. In my translation, I use a lot. It says he marveled at his faith. There's only one place I can find in the entire Bible where Jesus was amazed, it said, or he marveled at someone's faith. And it was the faith of a Roman centurion. And what he marveled at was this. He marveled at that Roman centurion recognized that he was a man who had authority and he was under authority. As a leader, if you forget either one of those things, you will not lead well. You have to remember you have authority and you are under authority. That, that, that amazed Jesus. All right, let's look though then at, at what Luke writes in Acts 15, 1 through 4. And as you do, I want to set this one up too. By this time, Christianity is spreading all around the Mediterranean and many non-Jews wanted in. And then there were many Jews who said, you bet, come on in. And here's the long list of rules. You follow all these if you want in. And there were those who said, I don't think that's what Jesus taught us. All those rules. So here's how it played out. Acts 15, 1 through 2, well, actually 1 through 4. But some men came down from Judea and they were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't even be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, 
I love how understated that is. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church there and the apostles and the elders. All right, so here's what happens. They have an issue in a church in Antioch that they can't solve. And rather than just continuing to fight and fight and fight, they said, let's get some help from the outside. We're accountable to these folks, these apostles in Jerusalem. Let's send a delegation there. Let's get some answers and some help. So picking up then in verse 6, the apostles, the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said some things. And then they listened to Barnabas and Paul. And when they had finished speaking, James replied, and he anchored their discernment process to the scriptures. Quick side note, James quotes Amos, which is the next book of the Bible we're going to be looking at. So if you want to read ahead to the next series, book of Amos. Well, after all this, after all the discussion and listening and all these things, the discerned position was that the church in Jerusalem said, we can't load these people who are coming to Christ with all those rules. Here are some basic ones we're going to say for you to follow. And they put some guardrails around idolatry. They put some guardrails around sexual immorality. And they said, here are, the, here are the things. And then, again, the way they handled this was so brilliant. Picking up with verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders and the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men from among the brothers with the following letter. They didn't just shoot an email, send it off, right? Because those can really be miscommunicated. They reached a consensus. They put it in writing. And they sent some people they knew would represent them well. So they could nuance that out together with these others. And that letter contains some words that every Christian leader should take to heart. Here they are. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit Isn't that the kind of church you want to be a part of if you want to be a part of the church? Where we're seeking that together. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit. This is truly godly. And we've arrived at that together. It seemed good to the Spirit and to us. Now, with a show of hands, how many of you know that the early church couldn't always reach that place? together. In fact, the very next passage, we point this out frequently, the very next section, I love how real the Bible is. Don't go into the book of Acts thinking, oh, here's this perfect model of people that always figured everything out. If we could only go back into the day and we could be like them where there were never any problems, they were people, right? And this is the very next thing that happens. Acts chapter 15, 36 through 40. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, hey, okay, let's go back. Let's visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord. And let's see how they are. Barnabas said, great idea. Let's take John Mark. Paul said, let's not take John Mark. And picking up with verse 39, there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took, John, took Mark with him, sailed away to Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. There are countless leadership lessons in Acts. The last one that I'd ask you to write down comes from this passage. Great leaders, great groups, 
that are trying to lead well together, they develop exit strategies. They put exit strategies in place. There will be times when leaders are not able to resolve their differences. It is not an if, it is a when. God-honoring organizations don't just anticipate that there will be transitions and disagreements that can't be resolved. They also develop ways to part ways well in advance. Ways to part ways well. All right, so here are four examples of leadership lessons that can be found in the book of Acts. There are countless others, countless others, and they don't all start with E, like our outline here today, all right? There's countless others. In fact, as I reflect on leadership and I look at the book of Acts and I look at my leadership library, I brought some books on leadership that I have in my my office. I look at these books. The choice is not between best practices of leadership and church. We, as God's people, should be setting the example of how we do leadership well together. And I look at these books and the best practices from the best books, you find them in the scriptures being lived out. And you also see examples in the scriptures when they are not living those things out. Man, there's so much good stuff there. Leadership matters. Godly leaders are the world's most valuable earthly asset. And that brings us back to where I said we'd land. Imagine a community with godly leaders in every role. Men and women of humility, men and women with wisdom, tact, committed to serving the needs of others, godly moms and dads, godly team members, captains, coaches, godly teachers and students and administrators, godly managers and supervisors and CEOs, godly volunteers, godly board members, godly church staff. Imagine if people could see Jesus in us. And imagine... If that were the case, we would stand out like that Sally, let's call her, out there on the roads. We would look that different. Well, it's been so easy these last couple weeks for me to be pointing fingers at other leaders. And I've been doing a lot of it. People on both political parties. I've had to reflect a lot, too, on, on different church leaders who have been extremely influential in my life, who have just... Things have come out that have just been really hard to believe. And it's so easy, again, to, to point these fingers. One of the practices that Jesus of Nazareth left for us was a sacrament that we call Holy Communion. And the process for Holy Communion is not to, to go and to reflect on, am I worthy enough to come and receive this? It's the opposite, isn't it? It's to come with our brokenness and to come and say, this, instead of pointing fingers out there at everybody else right now, this is a moment where we start with ourselves and we say, God, how have I fallen short? God, where are the ways where I'm broken? Where we don't wait for someone else to point it out in our lives, but we go there first. What are some of the things that I need to do to repair broken relationships? What are some of the things I need to do to produce fruit with my repentance? We want to give you an opportunity to do that now here in the sacrament that we call Holy Communion.